sermon score sheet there, and I want you to use that score sheet now. It's a very simple task. Take 30 seconds. I want you to rank yourself in these five categories. Rate yourself, your abilities, one being poor, five being excellent. So just take a few seconds now to do that. When you're done, you can total that up. Put that total in the little box to the right. If you didn't grab a sermon, uh, excuse me, a service folder on your way in today, you can look up on the screen here. That, you'll just have to commit it to memory. Now, obviously, this is not giving you a full personality profile or anything like that. Maybe take one of those before, those, those really intensive personality profiles answering questions for half an hour, 45 minutes. This is really just a little snapshot, but it, it does provide a little bit of a self-assessment, self right? And self-assessments like this, they serve as almost like a, it's like painting a self-portrait, right? This is a reflection of how you, you, you. Now, we're not going to use this anymore right now. Keep that kind of in your back pocket, though. We're going to look back at this later on during the message. For now, we are going to move on with our verses. We are uh, at the beginning of a very famous sermon taught by Jesus to his disciples called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this took place during the first leg of Jesus' ministry. He was becoming very popular as a miracle worker. When he was delivering this sermon, though, he was really primarily addressing his disciples. However, these crowds that always followed Jesus, that, that, that pursued him wherever he went, they're also within earshot. And so as Jesus teaches his disciples what life in his kingdom looks like, he's also opening the door so that these onlookers, these outsiders, can peer in and see what that life of discipleship means. So we're going to just read all of these verses from Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, right away, as Jesus uh, teaches us the Beatitudes, these characteristics of his disciples. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When people insult you, persecute you, and false you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophet who were before you. Now, while I was reading, you probably picked up on the repetition of that phrase, right? Blessed are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are. Blessed are, blessed are. But if we were to rewrite these Beatitudes of Jesus with Beatitudes of the 21st century, 
What do you think those would look like? Right? Who are the people, in other words, who are the people that we normally consider blessed, that we normally consider highly favored, that our culture looks up to as truly favored and enviable? If we were looking at the list of Beatitudes of the 21st century, maybe that list would include something like this. Blessed are the rich and famous, for they shall always have a seat at the restaurant of their choice. Blessed are the good-looking, for they will be on the cover of magazines. Blessed are those who party, for they know how to have fun. Blessed are the movers and shakers, for they will make a great name for themselves. Blessed are those who demand their rights, for they shall not be overlooked. Blessed are the healthy and fit. They are not afraid to be seen in a bathing suit. Blessed are those who make it to the top, for they shall look down on everyone else. These are the type of people that we, that our culture, we ourselves often consider truly blessed today. That's because the human inclination is for self-magnification. We want to be like the people that seem great and powerful and important. We want to be the respected ones, the ones that everybody else looks up to. And that's because, and this is our first key point today, that's because we exist not in a be-attitude world, but in a me-attitude world. We don't want the attention drawn away from us want to be in the limelight, the spotlight. There's a reason why so many people act like they are the center of the universe, and that's because this is the simple inclination of the human heart. And this is nothing new. This goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. This goes back to the beginning of human history. The early church father, St. Augustine, actually coined a phrase that he used to describe this natural bent of human being. The Latin phrase, he called this the curvatus in se. It means be curved in toward self. The focus is on me. Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, all of these stand today as highly successful monuments to the curvatus in se. How many followers can I amass and keep for myself? How many likes can that post get? How can I get people talking about me and my ideas? Such as this me attitude culture that we live in. But now let's look back at the beatitude of Jesus. They're quite different, aren't they? Other than the repetition of that phrase, blessed are, do you notice any common thread that runs through them? All of these these characteristics of the lives of Jesus' disciples include, and in fact demand, a high degree of selflessness. It's not self-magnification. This is the emptying of oneself. These There is an undeniable renunciation of self for the one Christ call humble ourselves for God 
so that the focus is no longer on me, but is upon the people that God has placed around me, and of course upon God himself. My allegiance is no longer to this world and the things of this world. My allegiance is Christ. Having emptied ourselves of ourselves, then, we are filled with the blessings of Christ's kingdom, the blessings of those beatitudes. Now I want you to make sure, I want to make sure that you are hearing me clearly here. Jesus is not saying that this world doesn't matter. And he's not saying that our lives in it don't matter. He's not even saying that the blessings of this world don't matter. Rather, the issue here is one of attachment. The disciple of Christ is no longer attached and bound to the things of this world. Money. Power, a great name, even family and friends are no longer the source of joy, comfort, and satisfaction for the follower of Christ. These things come from Him alone. Our allegiance belongs to Him above all else. This then will transform the way which His disciples live in and interact in this world. We will, in fact, stand apart from this world as Christ's disciples. Now, I want to go back to that sermon score sheet that you filled out for. And if you're still finishing that up, that's okay. You need to total up that score, though, now, if you haven't already, because it really is important for the next step in what we're doing. I'm not going to ask you to divulge your exact score. You don't need to show that to anyone. All I want to know is this. Did you score a 15 or higher? Did you know that unless we've had a pretty major here today, almost 100% of people will rank themselves average or above? And because Really, you can't score lower than a 5 on this, which puts 15 right in the middle. Now, my math may be a little shaky here, but by definition, aren't roughly half of us supposed to be below average? Most of us, even if we struggle with some self-esteem issues, still have an incredibly high view of ourselves and of our identity. But what if you ask your spouse, to fill out this scorecard for you? What if it were your spouse that were rating you according to these categories, or your best friend, or an associate at work, or your boss? Do you think that you would get such high marks then? Our identities as we view ourselves, and our identities as other people view us, are often vastly different, right? Usually, if somebody else were ranking you anonymously, there's no way this could get traced back to them, likely would not score quite as high marks as you gave yourself, at least not in some area. That's the reason why online dating profiles and job resumes are chock full of our best and noblest qualities, while the less pleasant 
parts of who we are remain ignored or are greatly watered down, right? Now, the whole goal of this was just to get you thinking about self-assessment as well as the fact that we oftentimes are not quite as great and wonderful and accomplished and able as we think we are. Because now we're going to self-assess the realm of these beatitudes that Jesus presented to the disciples. Are you poor in spirit? Or are you puffed up, full of self you mourn over your sinfulness and the sin that you see in the world around you? Or you excuse and justify your sin, maybe even applaud the sin in the world around you? Are you meek? Or do you stubbornly insist on your right, your way? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do you hunger and thirst for recognition? Are you merciful? Or do you hold grudges against those who wrong you? Are you pure in heart? Or are you crude and deceitful? Are you a peacemaker? Or do you stir up trouble and drama wherever you go? Are you willing to be persecuted for the sake of Christ? Or would you rather blend in with the world so that people maybe don't even realize that you are a Christian? It's interesting to note that as Jesus was presenting these beatitudes, he was addressing men like James and John, who were so meek that they tried to call fire down from heaven on people who disagreed with them. He was addressing men like Peter, whose peacemaking abilities would see him cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was addressing people like Judas. Your heart is full of betrayal. He was addressing people like Matthew, who recorded these words of Jesus that we read in our gospel lesson today, who was so bold in the face of persecution that he tucked tail and ran with the rest of his friends when Jesus was arrested. How could those disciples ever hope to receive the blessings of the Beatitudes when they themselves showed time and again that they were the opposite? of such virtues? How can I hope to receive the blessings of the kingdom of God when I myself am filled so often with such prideful self-interest? The only way that I can receive these blessings of the Beatitudes is if they are given to me by grace and it has a gift. And the only way that that can happen is if Jesus himself is the embodiment of these beatitudes. If Jesus is just another one of the billions of self-centered, self-serving people that has ever walked on this planet, then he, first of all, really has no moral high ground to demand these things of anybody else. But he also then wouldn't have any ability to empower me or those disciples or you or anyone to become such people. Oh, that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus becomes the embodiment of these beatitudes. Jesus is the man of the beatitudes. 
He didn't just become poor in spirit. No, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Jesus was the one who mourned, not under the burden of his own sin, but under the burden of this world's sin. Jesus became meek so that he spoke not a word in his own defense under the open-handed blows of his oppressors. Jesus was the merciful one. He healed the sicknesses and diseases of the people and forgave the sinners of their sin. Jesus was pure in heart. So pure, in fact, that he committed no sin, no deceit was ever found in his mouth. Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker, for he is the only one who has torn down that dividing wall of hostility that stood between sinful humanity and their holy God, reconciling us together with our Father. Jesus was persecuted as the only righteous person that this world has ever seen. Persecuted by his countrymen also all the way to a cross, and then persecuted on that cross still by sin and death and Satan and hell as he paid for every last bit of every last sin of every last person. Jesus is the living embodiment of these beatitudes. And that also means that every blessing of the beatitudes belongs to The kingdom of heaven itself belongs to Christ who died and rose again. But he doesn't now just keep all of those beatitudes hidden away for himself. No, Jesus says that when he calls you and me to faith, when he calls us to be his disciples, he gives us all those rewards of his righteousness. Though we have not earned them, he makes them our own. Quite simply, the citizens of the kingdom Enjoy the treasures there. Jesus calls us to follow him. It means change status. And with that change in status, there also comes now change. Our attitude, our activity. Life can no longer be curvatus in se, bent in toward ourselves like the rest of our culture filled with self-interest and self-promotion. That's the life of those who are still attached and belong to the kingdom of this world. Those who have been called to citizenship in Christ's kingdom swear their allegiance to him. So now Christ gives us these new me attitudes to replace the old me attitude. Cannot be who I once was because Christ has called me to be someone entirely different, the king calls on you to bear his resentment. So Jesus bids his followers to be poor in spirit. We know that we bring nothing to the table of God's salvation. Rather, it is entirely by his grace and mercy that we are called citizens of that kingdom. He bids his followers to be those who mourn, we have genuine sorrow over our sin and repudiate it. We are then comforted with the, the blessing that Christ has washed us free from every sin. 
He bids his followers to be meek. We no longer stubbornly insist on what we think are our rights. We no longer stubbornly insist on our way. No, instead now, even sometimes suffering injustice at the hands of this world, give up the right. Knowing that those rights belong truly in the hands of our Christ, God promises that the meek will inherit the new earth when he comes. He bids his followers hunger and thirst for righteousness. No longer go running after and filling ourselves up on the things of this world. Pursue the things of God. Jesus bids his followers be merciful. We don't hold grudges and ill will against those who have wronged us, even when those wrongs seem very grievous by our accounting of things. Because we have seen the mercy of our Savior, we show mercy. No sin is too great for our Bid followers be pure in heart, not continue to enjoy what God calls evil. We surrender our hearts and our bodies completely to Jesus so that he may reign in us. Bid his followers to be peacemakers. Do not simply enjoy the have. You know, go out into our lives wherever those lives may take us. We make peace. We endure suffering rather than inflict it upon others. We overcome evil with good, and in no way do we do this greater and when we proclaim that gospel message of Jesus, for he himself is the only source of peace. Us, God. Jesus does also bid his followers be persecuted sometime for his sake. Do not turn our backs on Christ so that we again look and act and talk and think like the people of this world. We do not blend back in when the going gets tough so that we look like those people of this world. Rather, continue to shine as light in this dark world, proclaiming that gospel message not only with our lips, but with our lives, whatever consequences may come for doing so. Because we live beneath Christ's cross. After all, we don't need kingdom of this world. We have a better. We have the kingdom of heaven where the great reward that Christ has won awaits all follow as his type. This last year, my grandfather at the ripe old age of 95 finally passed away, and I, I, I seen them seen him that much in recent years. When I was young, though, we were very, very close. And that man stands out in my life as a, a shining example of what it means to be a disciple, follower of Christ. To this day, he remains one of the most godly and virtuous men that I have ever known. Now, he didn't have a whole lot of money to speak of. He wasn't a household name. Even the people in our community, probably most of them wouldn't have known who he was. He lost his first wife, my grandmother, when he was still in his sick, very suddenly. A decade later, he lost his second wife, cancer. In the eyes of this world, his life would have 
been enviable to very few. Yet he was filled with the treasures of his kingdom. His life as a disciple of Christ was more blessed than that of any rock star or move type. Comfort. Even in the midst of death. The mercy of a Savior who forgave him of every last sin. The joy of obedience under the light and easy yoke of Christ and a certain hope of the resurrection to come, both for he and for his dead wife. And these were the kinds of treasures that no one, nothing, not even death, could take away from him, which dying only magnified exponentially. Enjoy your treasures. You are blessed. Follow me, Jesus says, and all these things will be added unto you. Follow him, wherever he may lead. Because at the end of it, with Christ, you always wind up in the best place possible. At the side of your Savior and your Father forever. Thank you.